Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the mailbag. Me, Marcus Speller, joined by him, Andy Brassel. How are you, Andy? I'm excellent. How are you, Ramblers? I assume that they are on tip-top form. I sincerely hope so, actually. It's... um. It's getting a little bit dreary, the lockdown, and it's going to continue for, for a lot longer. But, Andy, just being in your mere presence has lifted my spirit, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of all <laughs> the Patreon subscribers to the mailbag uh, with, with that statement. So are you on good form, Andy? That's the main issue here. I am, although I was on better form before you put lifted by the Lighthouse family into my head. <laughs> what are your top three Lighthouse family songs? <laughs> Well, you, you know what? I'm not going to answer that because no, you um, can't. they, before they reached the peak of their success, uh, rented a small flat off um, my wife's cousin and then oh, went off without paying him. No way. Can you believe that? I had no idea that this was going to be the big takeaway for today's show and so early <laughs> on in the show as well. My giddy aunt Andy, that's poor behaviour from the people who gave us Lifted and uh, what's the other one? Uh, Ocean Drive. Ocean Drive. No, the other one. Ocean Drive. When you're close to tears, remember someday it'll all... Hi! <laughs> Hi is the song. That's their best one. That, that's the one. Well, <clears throat> for as angry as we might be with the Lighthouse family, I think we have to say, <clears throat> Ramblers, Patreon Ramblers, Patreon you've missed Ramblers. a trick by not yeah, asking mugged. any questions about the Lighthouse family. <laughs> well, they will do now. They will do. Yeah, okay, right. Well, without further ado, Andy, let's get on to the real matters here. Um, if you, Andy Brassel, could join a band whose heyday was in... No, if, um, so we've got a couple of questions. <laughs> uh, we have one here from Damorg81. And and I'm, I, do you know what I'm going to do here, Andy? I'm going to link Damorg81's question with... TDB's question. So I'll read out the both. So Damog81 says, as a League of Ireland fan, a lot of fans are really worried about where their clubs will be or end up financially. That's if they manage to survive. Do you think we will see a lot of clubs going to the wall or will they be saved or will there be a way for them to be saved? And then TDB has asked, how about a second division roundup in the leagues in Europe? What are some of the storylines we missed out on from the second and third tiers across Europe? Now, I'm, I, I sort of think that they might be linked because Premier League clubs or top flight clubs will probably you know, almost certainly be fine from this, even though they may well take a, a financial hit. But there's a lot going on in the in the lower divisions in Europe. So have a go at that, Andy, because you've got the, the, the individual clubs themselves worried. And are there any storylines from those uh, from from the lower leagues around Europe? So far away, my good man. I think it's a really... Um relevant question actually a very relevant question because um it's, it's, it's something that we've spoken a lot about in in, in the uk and of course um the, the, the league of ireland the fact that um a thriving uh, network of clubs a thriving community of clubs are, are, are under serious threat um and I, I think it's easy to look at when you're looking at the pan-european picture to just look at the elite clubs um but it, it it will be tough. I mean, there are there are some people, and this is not a view that I subscribe to. But there are some people, specifically people who have their minds almost entirely on the financial side of the game, who will say, 
well, this is a cull that's waiting to happen because there's simply too many clubs. Now, whereas that may be something that's applied to the UK, other people would apply that to other leagues in um, Portugal or Spain or Germany, for example, where clubs outside the top flight, um, even not just clubs outside the top two divisions, really struggle to support themselves. Um, mm. Obviously, in the top two divisions, um, TV money is a huge part of that. But when um, a, a huge part of your model is um, match day income, then obviously you've got an enormous problem in uh, this sort of situation. Now, something I, I believe we touched on it on on, on last week's um, OTC. I'm not sure if we got around to it in the end, but something we've we've seen in Portugal, which um, has given me a lot of hope actually in the last week is that um, the Portuguese national team um, said no to their bonuses for um, qualifying for Euro 2020, now happening in 2021, of course, and uh, gave that money over uh, to support amateur footballers in in, in the, um, Portugal. So that's outside the yeah. top two divisions. So yeah. that's a sum of in excess of 4 million euros and it will make a, a difference. And then you've had um, players from other clubs, um, You've had um, Carlos Vinicius from Benfica, for example, Wilson Eduardo from Braga, um, giving money. Um, uh, the players working on um, food banks, um, mm. getting supplies to to amateur players who 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 might be um, might be going um, short. And Damog's point is a very very good one because while we might think we at the, teams outside the top two divisions have it tough in the UK. Those players are, in most cases, by no means millionaires, but they're much better paid than footballers, say, in the third tier in Spain Mm -hmm. or Portugal. So the amount of money that the Portuguese stars are offering them is a massive help and it's a massive difference. And also to stand up and say in a country where people don't really pay much attention, generally speaking, to football outside the top bracket. And when I say outside the top bracket, I really mean in Portugal, the top five or six, if that far of the top division for those players to say publicly for the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and, um, Andre Silva and Bernardo Silva and players like that to say these guys are important they're part of our society they're part of our football community that is absolutely huge so that really gives me hope going back to the question that you know th- th- there is a sense that um, the-, the top players realise and I think it's-, it's not a massive leap if you think about it because they would have grown up and played in youth teams and school teams and maybe mm. even academy teams with a lot yeah. of those players. Some of those players are their mates. So I think sometimes um, we can stereotype, um, especially footballers, top-level elite footballers, as being quite remote and disconnected with reality. I don't think most of them are disconnected with football reality, certainly. And so that's something we're seeing more and more with footballers all over the continent uh, giving money to all sorts of social causes and getting involved in themselves working out where exactly the money is going to go to. Um, But this example in Portugal is, I think, a really good one of how 
players are connected to what's happen- happening in the game, even going mm-hmm. all the way down. So that, that that's something that's absolutely great in my view. So it will take um, charity essentially from from some or creative and maybe even unexplored, previously unexplored ways for for others Mm. to survive. Yeah, it it, it will. Um, It will take um, help from uh, players' unions, of course. It will take um, help from um, football associations and federations in those countries. And it Mm. it will be hard. I I think... um, the the point is a sound one that um, a, a lot of clubs will go, um, but hopefully the fact that there is this awareness with in the game will mean that lots of them will be saved. That's something that obviously we all we all really want to see. And when we go into this second question about the the second division <coughs> roundup, it, it is relevant as well because, like I said, it's not just. Uh, third tier it's not just uh, fourth tier it's the fact that you know due to the projections in in, according to the projections in Germany for example um, if football were to not start again in May or June there could be like half of the clubs in the the second tier of of, of Germany going into bankruptcy Mm. and that is that is a crisis. I know crisis is an overused word in football. That is a genuine crisis. And, and, and there is there is no way around that. And I think, you know, if we look at the season so far in, in, in the Bundesliga Zwei, there are a lot of clubs that could be seriously, seriously threatened. I mean, um, of course, we... I guess the story from, uh, and I guess what the question is getting at is what's happened so far. I think this is quite relevant to that, actually, because Armenia Bielefeld are really well placed. They're the surprise leaders of the the Bundesliga's fire. And at least part of that, because they're six points clear at the moment, at least part of that is because Stuttgart and Hamburg, having looked, well, Hamburg having looked relatively solid for the first part of the season, Mm -hmm. have tripped over frequently in the, in the weeks before the the hiatus i mean the the eye catching result was hamburg losing the derby 3-0 at home to st pauli st pauli are a club have been struggling at the bottom of the bundesliga side pretty much since they last got relegated 9 or 10 years ago um so that was a that was a huge shock they've lost twice to st pauli this season hamburg and um you know you have to ask their clubs that um, obviously run at a bigger budget than most of the other clubs in the division. How would it affect them if they weren't able to go up this season? Obviously, they might not have gone up anyway this season because um, sportingly they'd, they'd, they'd had a few slips. But, you know, you look at Stuttgart changing coaches um, in, in, in the winter break. There's no doubt from everything that happened before the hiatus that there's an enormous financial imperative for these clubs to go back up. So whether they're in the that half of clubs who would be in serious trouble and have to file for bankruptcy, you know, we can't say for sure. But what is certain is that they would they would be in big trouble. And then we look at the other end of it. You know, you look at clubs um like 
Sandhausen, for example, who, who aren't getting that TV money. Jan Regensburg, not not such huge teams. And, and one that's dropped out of the top flight relatively recently, Hanover. They're in the middle of the table, but you know they've got no chance of, of going up, really. It's a question for them what they'd be able to do going forward. So they're, they're, they're something to look at. Mm. When we're talking about the financial side of, of it as well, um, I, I do wonder what this... Um, stop does for teams in in the segunda in in spain in the segunda a because um it's an interesting promotion race and at, at the moment you've got uh cadiz and zaragoza who it's been ages again since they've been yeah. on the top flight about 12 years um in in the box seat but i, I can understand why eyes are really drawn more towards the bottom part of the segunda a at the moment because um Deportivo La Coruña, who just missed out in the playoff final last season to Mallorca, something we covered on at the match. who was out uh, at Son Moish for, for, for that second game. Um, they're currently in the relegation zone. Um, and then you look at Malaga, who've been losing money hand over fist all season. Um, they originally signed Shinji Okazaki and they had to let him go because they didn't have the money to pay him. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're, they're in a dreadful financial situation. They might get chucked out of the league anyway when it comes to the end of the season if it's naturally completed. And I think for for big clubs like that, that will be a huge story because um, Deportivo, of course, you know they're a team who were within a whisker of the Champions League in in two thousand and four. Champions in two thousand, we used to see them in Europe quite a lot. Things have gone south for them in the last last decade, but. Dropping out of the Segunda A would be oh. massive for, for either of these two clubs because we're talking about what a drop-off it is between the second and third tiers in mm-hmm. some European countries. Well, the the thing is, when you drop out the Segunda A and go into the Segunda B, it's not a case of, right, you regroup and go back up. You know, it's, it's, it's not one league, the Segunda B. It's a series mm-hmm. of parallel leagues so you finish top of the league there's no guarantee that you'll get promoted it is really really hard to to get out of and for clubs of that sort of size quite apart from the revenue they'd lose i mean there's the possibility they could get stuck down there and it's you know i realize the word disaster is not something that should often be applied to a sporting context particularly in the current um world scenario but it would be very, very bad indeed and have a lot of effect on the club and their future viability. Andy, let's uh, move on uh, with a question from You Are The Human One, who says, Andy, in terms of... um, Excuse me. In terms of academies for coaches, Germany has its own, as does Italy, France and Portugal. Is this the reason that those countries produce better coaches? And how long will it take for the UK to catch up? You know, I like this question, Marcus, and I've been warming up for it for a while. (laughs) And um, I I think everyone knows um, the issue that the UK has in terms of um, getting um, higher UEFA coaching qualifications, UEFA recognised coaching qualifications, like the, the, the pro and the A, is, is really expensive. And in fact, some of the lower ones is, is, are pretty expensive as well. And I think particularly in the financial situation that 
an economic situation that people are going to find themselves in in um, the coming months and, and, and possibly years. You would hope that is that is going to change some more, and it's going to come down um, to the level of how much it costs in Germany or Spain. Where, put simply, if it's cheaper to people for people to apply for the course, you get a broader range of people and a better quality of candidate because it's not dictated simply by their mm-hmm. financial means or financial backing. Um, yeah. I do think the UK uh, and especially Englanders. Has, has come around quite nicely in that despite the fact that um, in the media you do have a certain amount of old school managers out there, and I do use the word manager rather than coach quite specifically, um, <laughs> that, that, that there is also the, the, the sense that maybe you don't have to have had an illustrious playing career to make it as a top level coach. Now, obviously in other countries, this goes way back to, you know, we were talking recently, weren't we, you and I about um, Milan under Saki, who was a shoe salesman mm-hmm. and, yeah. and a sort of amateur coach with, with no playing career to, to speak of. I mean, uh, and if we look further afield a, a um, at the moment, you look at Julian Nagelsmann at, at Leipzig, who knows, perhaps he would have been an absolutely, um, fantastic player if he hadn't have got that knee injury at 20 but still he had no um professional um playing career of, well, of any note jose really. Mourinho, andy didn't really do much in the game and and, and as loath yeah. as i'm to bring him in sven goran erickson <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, i think all those are th- those are those are quite valid um i think it's it's not just though about the price of qualification it is about that, although that is important. I do think it's the the attitude to, to towards coaching, and um, we've we've talked about it before in um, Portugal, particularly, and Italy. It's it's very much an intellectual pursuit as well. There's a sense that mm-hmm. it has to be an education, not just. I know about football. I need to tick these boxes to get my license and then be a coach. But the sense that you really learn about uh, the game, you learn about other people's theories, you learn about motivation, you learn how to discuss football, you learn how to not over-intellectualize football, but you know have some sort of um, cerebral discussion about it and that's something that's very notable in Portugal and what Portugal are always very proud of is that how well educated their coaches are and it's something that I've found when like, I've interviewed Portuguese coaches before you'll often find if you're getting into a conversation about tactics or about their view of the game and let's be fair any coach anywhere in the world there's nothing they like to talk about more than their view of the game. Mostly, is there? <laughs> you know, they they, they love to uh, self-aggrandize and you know talk about their, their their philosophies and go quite big on it. But when I've interviewed Portuguese coaches before, like Leonardo Jardim is a very good example. When they get into it, the interview might finish, the the tape might stop, the cameras might stop stop rolling, and they'll want to carry on because it's part of their mm cultural upbringing as a coach the fact that they scholars of the game you discuss call yeah exactly they, they, they don't just want to say 
this is me. They want to discuss. They want to exchange ideas. They're mm-hmm. open to exchanging ideas. I think that's very, very important indeed. So I wonder if it's something as cultural as it is financial and institutional. Yeah, um, but that's not damning- to say there's there's no. That's not to say there's no hope for the for the UK as well. But just as with anything, it takes time. It takes leaders and it takes generations for for stuff to change. And I do believe it is gradually changing, but mm. it has to be gradual. And we see this from the playing side as well of, of the approach of the England football team and so on and so forth. But a damning tweet, though, that I saw from uh, from old Oily Sailor um, at Opta. An English manager winning the English top flight is closer to the release of Mary Poppins in August 1964 than it is now. And there we are. Wow. It's been a long time, people. It's been a long time. In Spain, the value of the ball is so important. So important in, in thinking about in attacking, attacking. Um, in Germany, is a uh, is a physicality strong, mm-hmm. and the counter attack there is a, a strong weapon. Here, the defender is here and the striker is here, so the ball don't travel with the team. But this kind of ball, if you win, it's good. But if you lose, it's a counter-attack. Mm. And, and that's why the football English is nice, because it's mm. box-to-boxes and it's attractive for the people. All right, then. Uh, what about this from Barrio? Barrio says, how was Herving Lozano... How is Herving Lozano settling into life in Naples? His record to date seems to imply that he... Struggled. I mean, Lozano, of course, Andy did. He did very well at PSV. Won the league there. Scored a lot of goals, for, especially for a winger. And if if people hadn't have heard of him before the World Cup, you know, shot to fame with that goal against Germany mm. in the group stages, it was a huge signing for Napoli. It was at around forty-two something like that million pounds. The 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 biggest fee in Napoli's history, the biggest transfer they've ever made. And I think it was the most money ever paid for a Mexican player. So there was a lot of could argue pressure on him going into a, um, a rather unique football club in some regards. Um, it's, is it understandable that he's struggling a bit, moving up a tier as well? Serie A obviously more competitive or, or more um, more quality in there than the Eredivisie. I think you're right to identify the fact that it's a, it's a big leap from mm-hmm. the Eredivisie to Serie A. And he has found it hard so far. I think there are a number of factors involved in this. And um, very few of them are related to that whopping transfer fee that that, that you described before. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, I think you have to look at, at, at Napoli and what a uh, bizarre environment it's been this season. Of course, they started the season with Carlo Ancelotti, still to an extent rocking the system that was put in by... Um, Maurizio Sarri even though he'd begun to develop it into his own and I think they'd looked excellent in a European context and of course he got them into the the, the second round he got them out of the group stage again this season Um, but the fallout between the players and uh, the the management of the club um, and by that I mean the board was something that was really tough. I think that must have been something that was difficult for him. They went on this massive winless run, of course, um, round about autumn. 
And um, until Gattuso started pulling it together in recent weeks before the hiatus, um, they, they looked to finish in mid-table this season, which was a remarkable fall from grace when you look at a team who, firstly, had been a challenger in recent years, and secondly, in buying Lozano, in buying Costas Manolas, had basically gone out there and said, right, we're serious about doing it again this season. So we're talking about falling so short of expectations. Mm. It was it was a shambles of a season, really, on and off off the pitch, um, notwithstanding, of course, the departure of Ancelotti as well and what a huge change that was going from one type of coach to a very, very different type of coach in Gattuso. But when we look at Lozano personally as well, um, I tended to think that he would do well when he moved on because he was someone who, as you said, um, marked people's card after the World Cup, but chose not to go. He could have left PSV then, but he thought, hang on, I'm pretty new to European football. And he'd started his first season with PSV in 2018 brilliantly, and it had leveled off a bit in the in the second half of the season. And I think he was wise to stay that extra season. It's quite unusual now to see a player of that sort of ability and that sort of continued potential as well to hold off to go to a major league and a major club until their mid twenties. But I think he'd done the right thing. Um, I think the problem was they never really had a plan for him. They never really had a plan to to, to fit him in, and so. Ancelotti struggled to get the most out of him in the team. And Gattuso, understandably enough, because he has um, um, he had a million other things to sort out, um, notably pulling the team's fortunes around and hopefully, as he's, he's done from their perspective, getting them back into European contention. I think that we shouldn't mistake what Gattuso has not done with Lozano before, uh, to this point, um, has been a lack of interest in him. or And we shouldn't say, well, he's, he's just written him off. Firstly, I don't think the club can afford to write him off. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to sell him and, and, and get the money back for him that they paid for him, especially in this environment. And um, <clears throat> I think they'll they'll need to work on him going into um, the pre-season and in, in, into next season. Um, but at the moment, Gattuso just has to get the team winning. He, he can't be mm-hmm. working on one player. Um but it's, it's, it's been really hard for Lozano because if you think he played the majority of his football at PSV sort of on the left coming mm-hmm. in to, 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 to score goals. Now, there's no suggestion that he can play in sort of central role. And he's played a lot at centre forward for Napoli so far, which is one of the things that's been tough for him. Or eventually, I'm guessing on the right-hand side because... Jose Cajon is getting on a bit. He's out of contract this this summer, um, or at the end of this season, whenever it ends. So he's likely to be on his way, I suspect, back to Spain. Um, but of course, if you're on the left, cutting in, and what in appears to be the old Memphis Depay spot, the, the, the fact is, how are you going to get into the team ahead of Lorenzo Insigne? It's just not happening. There's no way you are going to play instead well, absolutely. of Insigne. Now, of course, he's he's had his difficulties in terms of uh, relationship with the fans, relationship with the club, but he, he's been terrific for Gattuso so far. There is absolutely no way that Lozano gets that spot ahead of Insigne. It can't happen. So and it's a shame, Andy. Out. 
it's a well, shame because that's where we that's where we saw him cut in from the from the left onto the right foot against Germany. You know, that's my that yeah. is my endearing sort of um, memory of Lozano. But I, there's no chance that Insigne is going to move unless it was for enormous money. Surely, no. I, I, I strongly suspect that not too far down the line, there's the um, there's the gold watch contract that. Um, you know, sees him be Napoli for life. I think that's something that that he mm-hmm. would like to to be there, Francesco Totti or or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But it it does mean that they're going to have to find a different way to to use Lozano because I, I don't think they're going to sell him. Um, the only possible out is is a loan move, and if it was a loan move, I think it would have like a club like Sevilla written all over it. Um, I, I think they could they could do very well with him, but I would like to see him stay and be given his chance but you know a lot of great players um have a season at a club to to bed themselves in i just think you bear in mind um the toxic environment at the club you bear in mind i would say the lack of forward planning in them working out how they're going to use him and it's not surprising that it's been tough for him i i don't think it's any knock on him at all really all right, Andy, let's finish with this one from the Cashman Can, who says, uh, previously you discussed Yusufa Makoko. Before the Bundesliga changed their rules, do you think that this prospect alone moved them to change? Or were there other reasons? So, Andy, why don't you tell us what's changed uh, in the Bundesliga and give us a quick recap of Makoko in case anybody missed that? Well, yeah, the rule change um, a couple of weeks back was that... Um that they finally uh, signed it off to bring the the minimum age down for a, a Bundesliga player from 18 to 16. And uh, Yusofa Makoko has been scoring plentiful goals at the age group levels for Dortmund since he was 12. Um, he was 14 at, at, at the, the, the start of the, the, the season when he started banging them in for... Um, uh, for, for, for Dortmund's youth team. And uh, he's been scoring goals in the U, um, UEFA Youth League. He became the youngest player to to, to score in that. And um, he, he just turned 15 in um, November. So I can understand why people would think um, bringing down the rules would be specifically tailored to him because it sounds fanciful to do it for one player. But I think mm. you look at him and how excited people not just in Germany but I think increasingly over Europe and the world are about him and he, he looked terrific in the, in, in the youth league um, th- there's, there's maybe a sense that if it goes right he could become some sort of global star especially for a club like Dortmund that likes to put young players front and centre as, as, as we've seen throughout this season and, and previous seasons um, it's not just down to him even though the changing rule means that he could make his Bundesliga debut next season. So yeah, he becomes 16 in November. So, so from them, because um, Germany is always thinking about how it can preserve its own football culture, yet come a little bit more in line with the rest of the top European leagues. And, you know, there have always been people in the Bundesliga, and when I say people, I mean Bayern, who have thought that um, certain rules and don't allow um, the Bundesliga to um, financially maximise its potential. Now, it's done brilliantly in, in recent years in terms of 
um, making itself more consumable across the world. But of course, there's the 50 plus one rule, which um, some people don't agree with, um, that stops significant foreign investment, for example. That's something that um, Martin Kint, the the, the chairman of Hanover tried to change. He tried to uh, get an exception made and took DFB to court so he could um, get 70% of, of, of the shares and um, invest in the club that way. Um, he was not successful in in that. But um, when you ask around the Bundesliga, um, the, the, the feeling was that by not allowing players to play until they were 18, that did affect... Um, their ability to get young players, to mm-hmm. keep young players. And I think especially when the game is more and more based on speed and physical power, there was maybe a sense that it was a little bit outdated, that um, you know players are ready quicker. And you see that in other European countries. Now, we've got to go back, though, and look at the detail in the rule because it was always you had to be 18 or be um, a regular player for the under-19 team of your club that you're with. Because, mm-hmm. of course, we look at um, the player who's the youngest to, 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 to make a debut in the Bundesliga at the, at the time, Nuri, Nuri Shahin. Nuri Shahin was 16 when he first played for Dortmund. But it was because he was playing for the under-19s they made that exception. Now, interestingly, and going back to Makoko, it was Lars Ricken, um, who's the youth coordinator for Dortmund, who, of course, scored that brilliant third goal in the 1997 Champions League final and was oh, only 20 yes. at the time. He was 18 when he made his debut. He said, look, this is something that puts us, as I was explaining before, at a major disadvantage compared to other European countries. Now, the fact is, um, things are changing in terms of players aren't going to be able to go abroad as young uh, anymore. So um, that, that's that's something that's, that's that's changing under FIFA rules. So um, players, it's extremely likely that they're going to have to stick with um, native clubs more than they they had to in the past. Um, it was interesting to hear counterpoints to this as well. We were talking about Julian Nagelsmann earlier. I mean, he said, well, basically, if you've got um, a player who's 16, unless they're absolutely exceptional, really, are they going to be making it into the first team? And there's so mm. many challenges. And Nagelsmann is very, very big on um, the social side of coaching. I mean, he famously described... Um, top-level coaching as uh, 15% tactics and 85% social competence. And I think that's a good point to, to make at this because the adjustment that you have to make um, is, is, is something that's that's really tough. I mean, you know, you look at um, Karen Benzema when he broke through at Lyon, he scored his first Champions League goal at, I think, 17. Um, but by the time he was 20 and went to Real Madrid, he said, in retrospect, he was quite ill-equipped to deal with that, not just because he'd never left Leon and he didn't speak the language. He was still living at home. And all of a sudden, yeah. he was a 40 million footballer who had to be put in this completely adult context. So I think that's a good point as well. So whereas this may be good for Yusufa Makoko and for, for Dortmund, I do think there has to be an eye on really looking after these players, as a lot of clubs will 
already. But I think there has to be um, an afterthought from the DFB, not just, right, we've, we've decided this is the rule and let's let it go from here. I think they have to monitor how it rolls out and the effect that it has on the best young players because um, obviously some of those formative experiences that you have at first team level, especially at that sort of age, at 16, 17, if you're lucky enough to get in the team at that age, they can really shape you going forward for worse as, as well as for better. So I think it has to be continually looked at. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Appreciate your thoughts on all those questions, of course. <clears throat> and thank you very much, everybody, for getting your questions in. Do keep them coming on the Discord app. Andy is is only too pleased uh, to to answer them, of course. Um, so, yeah, that is the, the end of the mailbag this week. Andy, thank you very much, my good man. It's been a bloody pleasure um, just thank sitting you. back and listening to you uh, talk us through some of the more finer points of, uh, of European football, but also some of the more general ones as well. So, yes, nice one, pal. Um, and uh, thank you very much again, everybody, for, for getting involved in the Discord and Patreon and so on and so forth. Uh, we love you all dearly. So, um, so so do be active on that. And as I say, the mailbag channel on Discord is is there for you to just, just shove your questions in. Like I say, if you suddenly wake up in the middle of the night and think, my giddy aunt, I need to know more about the Bundesliga, then then, uh, <laughs> then whack them on there. Uh, and we will be ready uh, and waiting for, for another episode of the mailbag to, uh, to tackle those questions. So thank you very much, Andy. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you next week. This was a Stakhanov production.